Hey everybody and welcome to episode 3 of Ignite the Flame Audio Season 2. In this episode we'll be picking up from where we left off in the previous episode. I'll read chapter 3 to you and then we'll go into a section known as the Origin of Ideas where we break down the inspirations that led to that chapter. Then we'll go into Tips of the Trade which is a section dedicated to those of you aspiring to be authors or authors just looking for that little bit extra. Of course we'll try and endeavour to include all the links to any relevant sources of information that are mentioned in this episode down below, so be sure to check them out once the episode is finished. Okay, let's go ahead and get started. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Scarcrow. Chapter 3 Pumpkins Lit Before I knew it, we were falling toward the depths of murder, a place of despair for most, but that of comfort to me. The streets outside the asylum were littered with remnants from the cost of a nation in disrepair. Younglings scouring the bags of refuse in search for their next meal and the higher class gorging, chucking their leftovers to these poor souls, feeding them as hounds, laughing amongst themselves with discrimination worn across their face. We walk alongside them, and I pull my scarf to my next base, revealing a grotesque reminder of the wealth divide, and how fear can be used to manipulate others as I send them cowering into each other's arms completely deluded by their master of silver and gold. How money has corrupted us all. We betray one another, sacrifice dreams, and seek destruction to obtain it. And yet, it is an acid devouring the base of the bucket we choose to fill, trickling to the ground and leaving us hollow, wanting more, always without pause, without thought, to those with life in need of it. As I pull my scarf to my nose, once again concealing my lack in flesh and tissue, my top jaw caresses material, with teeth exposed and bone visible in areas. Mummified, alive for a mistake which I had no choice but to commit. And yet they beautify themselves, with remarks toward others of their flawless complexion and radiance not appreciating the fairness and beauty already blessed to them. To compare oneself with another, as you have no credit for your own appearance, is to wish yourself into non-existence. And for that, you have already lost who you are. Rejoice in how you appear, for I would give anything to look as they do. But your beauty radiates inside and out. Embrace it, young ones. Oh, blast it! That child has stolen my wallet! Hey, you there! I will pursue, Inspector. Fear not. Your master will return to you. What did you say? Never mind. I say, as I trail behind them, with the lower flanks of my overcoat, flaying backward, leaving a trail of water and refuse in its wake, I run after them, through the alleyways and corners, dodging falling debris from windowsills and tumbling crates of vegetables as they try to evade me, slowly but surely gaining on them, 
I changed direction and began to corner them into a street, which I knew had a blank wall at its end, and, just as planned, they funnel into it. The children stop and turn, half-starved and trebling in fear, their eyes stained with cruelty and faces bruised with foul temper and disregard. How we raise our children in such a society, one which professes peace and yet it continues. Those who lash to their children only hide their own insecurity, and we should fight together for a world in which correction through understanding takes to the skies. Now, now, my ravens, calm yourselves and gather round. As I kneel, they come closer, as though drawn to a fire's side, awaiting a warm embrace. Now, you have taken a wallet which does not belong to you. Sir, you know what it is like to strive in London. A fool can only survive here. Indeed, but yet you are alive, all of you. Does that make you foolish? No, sir, it makes us survivors, my dear boys, and nature requires survivors. Now, return to your homes. Take the money, but give me the wallet. Allow me to explain to my inspector. Sir, why would you do that for us? He wanted him. Aren't you? Far from it, dear boy. And they know it. But if no one else will speak for the voiceless, then I must rise for you. I pull my scarf down and witness a look about them. Not one of distress and fear, but of acceptance. A brother welcomed into their fold. How it took a young mind to change the opinion of the masses. Perhaps all those who are set in their ways will yield to young minds and allow for creative thought. Sir, how long you had that? Does it hurt? The boy reaches toward me to touch what sparked his intrigue. I pull away, turning my head toward the floor before raising the scarf to my nose and opening my eyes. A long time, child, but I still have my voice, and so I speak. You have your lives, so you should live. Now, leave the wallet and go, and be safe, won't you? We will, sir. If ever you need help, the crow's nest. That's where you'll find us. I'll bear that in mind, young one, and thank you for your cooperation. I relieve them of the wallet and scatter them to the four winds. The inspector catches up, irate from being made a mockery in front of his constables, who snigger behind their posts, laughing at him from afar. How would he cope with it? As we had learned to, I had yet to know. Ah, Inspector, here, your wallet. Empty, you fiend. What did they do? Well, did you have need for the money? There was twenty sovereigns in there. But did you have need for it? No, suppose not. And if it gives them another day, then I guess it is right. After all, justice is fair treatment for all, right? Spoken as a true gentleman, Inspector. But alas, in this world, I'm afraid it isn't days which these children seek. But look, one line of corruption leads to another. Several of these young ones give in to another demon dwelling within our cities, the allure of cigarettes corrupting and polluting all it touches with a yellow afterlife and fog of death's atonement, staining their airways, strangling all life from them, 
with each inhalation. How can you give them my money when that is what they do with it? How can you condone such an act of atrocity? You blame me, Inspector, but am I responsible for their murders? Or are those who serve them guilty? Am I guilty of killing those who drink themselves into darkness or search for reality which does not exist through medication? Well, no. But you are responsible for giving them the money to buy those death sticks as you call them. What kind of doctor would sanction such methods of relief, they say? Ha! It takes your life. What relief does that provide, I wonder? And did you not tell me to give mankind a chance? A purity undiscovered, you said. Very well. Okay. I asked for this. But I did not wish for this. Who does, Inspector? A world where children are snared by poison and blackness. But all we can do is be there for them, and attempt to guide them the best we can, else they end up just like our mistakes, and surely we wish the best for them. That we do, and I'm going to start now. Hey, children, listen, don't run. It's all right. Look, I'm not angry about the money, but please don't do this. You're slowly killing yourselves. You have so much to live for, so much change to be made. You have no right to judge, sir. You're not our parents. Besides, why do you preach to us and yet adults carry on regardless? For they are responsible for their own souls. But yours are still growing. I mentioned behind the scarf, each child pulling the cigarettes from their mouths and discarding them to the ground and trampling them, as it should be. Sorry, sir. Moment of weakness is all. We really are sorry. Don't worry, young one. I understand. Just promise you will try. Promise me, my ravens. Grasping them by the shoulders, they all kneel with me and lower their heads as if redeemed from their collective sin. Please, sir, you going to tell our parents? No, young one. You are all so fragile, and we should do all in our power to help you. But we can't do it alone. But remember this. There is one who has carved your name in stone despite you all feeling alone and in times of weakness. Turn to him, and he will guide you when we fail you. Who is he, sir? You know, young one. Gesturing across, across the chest, enlightening the boys to a calling on their lives far greater than anything the Empire could offer them. Now, scatter, and do promise me you will try, all of you. Yes, sir, we, we will. Sir, we promise, dummy lads. Yeah, yeah, we, we promise, promise, yeah. They trip over each other and flee before us, leaving the inspector with mouth agape, wondering what we had just accomplished. I had no idea you were a man of faith, Jack. Not as convicted, anyway. There are many things you have no idea of me, inspector. But you will learn in time that pleading to people is easier when you act as a symbol of hope rather than that of fear. I say, contradicting my alternate person who delights in nothing more than fear and desperation, feeding off it as a leech to a hemophiliac. As we leave our place of addiction and decadence, the streets call to us, following a winding path with trees along its southern edge, a wooden fence and bridge, overlooking a small river only inches deep. Surely we had entered Regent Street. Well, here we are, Detective. Shall we enter? 
That's Doctor, Inspector. And it's your case. So make the choice. Ah, oh, very well. Bite the hand that feeds you. I wouldn't have it any other way, Inspector. I don't take help from those I have yet to trust with my life. Trust is an issue, certainly, then. Only for those who I am unsure of. And how does one ensure your trust? Now that is the question. Ever wonder why I have no close people to me or my cause? Because you are socially awkward and crave your own company more than anyone else? Well, that is a large part of it. But if nothing else, it's safer that way. No one is hurt. Well, it is a lonely road, I'm sure. It may be. But I didn't say anything about helping people along the way. You see, you can be a friend to others without needing them in return. The path of an angel, as such. Do you say yourself as angelic, Doctor? Fallen, Inspector. Wishing to return home. Shall we search beyond and seek the truth? The house. A grand structure, rivaling that of the palace, with columns of white stone and overlay. Its walls a pale white with blackened windows. I enter the house, still under the watchful eye of the constabulary, remaining here throughout the night and well into this day, most looking near death in their own states of mind, and body veering side to side, as though in a universal trance. Back up, gents! Look lively! Hodgkins, what do we have? Douglas, sir. Here's Hodgkins. Oh, yes. Uh, apologies. What is the case? Nothing more than last night, sir. You had all the evidence sent to that witch doctor's asylum. As though ceasing to exist, I rival. I don't know. Evidence remains despite the removal of the body. But if you would like, I could remove two more. I stare into their eyes with devious intent. My lower lids raised and smile risen. The inspector comes between us, mentioning. Now, now, gentlemen, we can work together on all of this. And Douglas... You have no right to question the good doctor's sanity, just because he may be a reclusive of sorts. Apologies, sir. I didn't think. No, you didn't. Now make yourself scarce, or it'll be McLean you answer to. Go. The tone of the inspector changes from one of sarcasm to reality in the blink of an eye, almost equaling a shock to me, if it weren't for my continued distrust of his intentions. Now, if you don't mind, I would like to be left in peace as I go to work. I open my black and brown bag, filled with test tubes and analysis of all kinds, rendering modern scientific methods a Stone Age memory. Its varying compartments, more sophisticated and complex than that of exotic puzzles, each with its own tool, a story to tell, and secrets contained within each pocket. Opening a small combination of locks, a hidden opening peeks wide. Toward the bottom of the bag, dark and empty, but as I look closer, and now for my partner in this endeavor, as I open my bag fully and reveal mask and gauntlets, showing a side of my insanity, despite the inspector only being in the other room, placing the mask on and relieving my scarf, my voice shifts to a groaning whisper once more, and I begin to see detail before unknown to me. Glimmers of light and chemical spillages displayed through mesmerizing color, I run my hands across the floor where the body once lay, and I witness gaseous forms rise from the boards, revealing luminescent vapors and crystals to me, as though warfare on a biological scale had incurred premature to our first arrival. 
I remove my test tubes and test samples with Lugol's iodine to check their composition in the hopes of ascertaining their influence in this murder. But it would take a further skilled mind than mine to determine, which unfortunately meant staying in this maiden even longer, for its knowledge of chemicals was unparalleled. The structure begins to separate, and mass, weight, and molecular alignment become visible. Seeing the realms, my knowledge can barely comprehend. Eyes flickering and lapping up the images as though in a hallucinogenic state. My head throttling back and forth. I clasp my mask in an attempt to remove it, but the noose tightens, widening my grip on immortality and seeing into the realms of the divine displaying shards of memory scattered through the remaining ghosts of the room, hidden in all but air, relinquished to only our sight. Suddenly, the convulsions dissipate, and I am loosened from the grip of the noose, pulling it to the comfort of the bag's bottom once more. I remove the gauntlets, not before removing the contents from the carpet and sampling their chemical composition, deciphering the presence of sulfur and coffee, as though to be attuned with its signature, coloration before. Alas, I had witnessed it before, from a life long since past. As I place my gauntlets back into my leather bag, I call to Inspector Moore. What was that? Doctor, are you all right? Jack, what, what did you say? With eyes open and scarf raised, I turn toward the inspector and remark, I must apologize. I thought I saw something of interest, but it appears to be nothing. Did you hear the angels singing? Angels, Inspector. Death resides here. Oh yes, it does. But look at this. I reveal the brew of yellow and brown liquid housed within a tube of glass only centimeters thick. Do you know what it is, Doctor? I have an idea, but there is only one way to be sure. I have to find someone. Who? An old friend. I grab my things and leave the safety of the house to reside to Black Street an area of gangs and crawling beings which feed on the misery of others and revel in the destruction of this beloved city, feeding and benefiting from the chaos of a power-hungry beast. This was the area where no officer resided if they valued their life, though now it had become a safe haven for the criminal underworld, which is why I now required access, and I was all but certain my partner would grant me full admittance. I near its blackened streets and smoke-covered roads, entering the gates of Hades itself, the fires of people's tongues cursing the light which supports them, and damning the monarchy which attempted to reach out to them, a lost civilization secluded in the dark for years, feeding on shadows and reaping goods from weary travelers in aspiration to survive. I pull my mask from the bag once more, attempting to walk amongst them as a symbol not for hope this time, but of fear, for this was their language and the only faith in which they laid claim. I walk through the pillars of darkness, around corners of blood-stained walls, leading to a darkened overcast sky with no hope or escape, condemning all those beneath, much like our view to those who lie beneath us, I would guess. Rats devouring crippled men and children unable to escape or fend them off, I fly my feet at them and offer them a light even in this depression. For if no one else will, then what chance do they have? I seek Shadow. You know of him. I whisper in a grumbled tone toward the man in the street, pointing to his last known location. 
edging me closer and closer toward that which I sought. What I would accomplish once I found him, I did not know. Led on by the remainder of those who lived here, selling him to me as I journeyed through with no honor among thieves, all for a meal of bread and a drink of water which I was more than happy to provide them. Here, drink your fill and rest. You must take care of yourself, young one. And you, sir, here, eat this. It will strengthen you. I pass what little I may offer to support their already decaying bodies, eaten by gangrene and in desperate need of medical attention. All of them, hindered by the wage of health and the fear of doctors removing more than money would sanctify. Don't be afraid. I have not come for any of you. Only Shadow. You know where he is. Over there, sir. That way, sir. And... (coughs) I saw him on the street's end, sir. Come from a mixture of tattered voices. The hands continue to reveal him, until eventually I gain sight of a comrade, which I once called brother. I pursue and grip him by the throat, pinning him against the wall, opening myself to his hands filled with a vicious powder thrown into my eyes, and causing enough of a distraction so as to ensure his escape. I will hunt you, brother, until you belong to me. What do you fear? I begin to run faster than I have ever before, and see further than I once knew, following his steps almost perfectly, hastening to his side as a cheetah overpowering its quarry, pursuing him over roadways and ascending rooftops. We glide across the night of artificial darkness, chasing through swirling mists of chimney plumes, dissipating around our form as if to reveal a primal appearance in the way we moved, ascending chimneys as stairways and leaping over falls which could prove deadly at one misstep, a fact I used to my advantage as I utilized the plumes to cover my advance. I bear left and intercept just before the next ledge. I trip Shadow, and he falls to the lower level of a staircase following the exterior of a building severely injuring his ribs. In decline, I drop to his level and raise him to his feet, dragging him past those I had shown kindness earlier, each one describing me as an angel who claims the unrighteous in the night, a symbol of fear ingrained in their memory, longer than any symbol of hope, and despite it being false, part of me appreciated the influence it gave me, a phantom who could walk amongst men of pitch black, unharmed, not as one of them, but alone as a harbinger all its own. As I pull Shadow's unconscious body through the wall of thick black smoke, one thing is clear to those watching. The true nature of my asylum was about to be revealed to him, whether he wished to see beyond the darkness or not. It was no longer his choice. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. This is the section of the podcast where we discuss the ideas that have been presented in the chapter that's just been read to you, and we break them down for you, basically explaining how these ideas led to the chapter itself. So the first point we want to raise awareness to is the fact that smoking became a social convention during Victorian times, especially in the youth. There was this urban myth going around that because of the pollution levels in London and the smoke and soot that was being breathed in. 
cigarettes were being passed off as a way to sort of cut out the soot from people breathing it in. So it was like, if you were to smoke, it'll keep your lungs free of the soot that would otherwise damage. So it was sold falsely under a pretense that cigarettes were good for you. And it was seen in modern society, at least in the Victorian age, that people younger and younger were smoking cigarettes because they were encouraged to. And of course, in Victorian London, there was no age limit as there is today. So you could have groups of children as young as 10 that were smoking. Um, and it was just to raise awareness, basically, to something that was falsely advertised and became part of the social convention during those times and just helps to sort of give some historical context in society and also helps raise awareness about a social convention, which is definitely apparent even today. The second point reflects the idea that the younger generation is our key to a better future. Throughout these three chapters, we've seen the main protagonist, Jack. He's had this almost tendency to look out for young people. You know, he refers to them as his ravens. Now, we discussed this in the episode before, where he's willing to take groups of children that have had a hard lot in life and train them up, give them essential skills. And in this chapter, we see that he's even willing to counsel them on a moral scale, advising them to shy away from the partaking of cigarettes, because obviously being a doctor himself, he understands the hazards to health. Now, obviously, the connection between cigarettes and cancer wasn't made until the Second World War by German scientists. So that wasn't until 1940. So in Victorian London, there would have been limited knowledge as to the detrimental effects that cigarettes have. But there would have been some knowledge, you know, so obviously in the character of Dr. Lantern turning around and advising these children not to smoke cigarettes was more of a moral conviction. But it definitely reflects the point and we're, we're seeing it more in today's modern time. Um, I saw an advert recently the other day. Uh, I think it's for BT or something. Uh, it's a technology advert where this little girl is walking through this sort of series of scenes and she's saying words like, it was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, the season of darkness. We had nothing before us. We have everything before us. And it's such an inspirational advert because you think, yeah, it's, you know, the future lies with our future generation. And it's just a way of reflecting that key fact that we do need to invest both morally and physically into our younger generation to ensure that we have a better future. The third point is another reference to music. Um, for any of you who have been listening to previous episodes, you'll know that we have references to music, video games, films. And this one, there's a reference where Jack mentions carved your name in stone. Now, this is a reference to another song by my favourite band, Killswitch Engage, uh, from a song called Desperate Times. And one of the lyrics is, carved your name in stone. So this basically reflects the point that we were listening to that song while we were writing, and it happened to make its way into the story, respectively. The fourth point is, once again, a depiction of our own personality coming forth in the protagonist of Jack. In this one scene, there's a confrontation between Jack and Moore where he asks Inspector Moore why he thinks it is that he doesn't allow people to work with him, why he prefers to keep people away. 
And Moore turns around and, and says, it's because you're socially awkward and you don't like anyone else's company but your own. And he turns around and he says, you know, Jack turns around and says, that's part of the reason. But the main reason is because it's safer. This reflects our own personality, our own mentality in a lot of ways. We prefer to work alone on a lot of our projects and we prefer to keep our own company, especially during the time of writing Scarcrow. It was much easier and safer for everyone else, at least the way we saw it. The final point is this introduction to Blackstreet. Now, in a lot of stories, you'll realize that, or you'll notice then, that there's reference to areas where it's sort of like the darker elements reside. You know, in any story, whether it's Lord of the Rings, whether it's Star Wars, there's always this one place which is centered around the theme of the other side, you know, darkness or or the dark side or anything like that. And Blackstreet basically becomes that central focus of the criminal underworld, the criminal element, which we'll see expressed throughout this novel and also in later novels of this same series. Okay, so that about wraps it up for this section. So let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section where we include tips for those of you aspiring to be authors yourselves or those of you who are already authors that just wish for that little bit extra along your journey. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the topic of chapters. So there's convention that surrounds chapters in the sense that there's a lot of ways in which you can do them. So some people uh, like to name chapters. I, for one, prefer to name my chapters rather than have numbers. Other people have number systems. So for example, R.L. Stein, you know, the author of Goosebumps, he prefers to number his chapters. Whereas you take someone like James Patterson and he'll name his chapters in some books and then in other books he'll number his chapters. So there's no real set way to do things. As we continually mention throughout these tips, there's no set way in which to do something. There's no correct way in which to do something. All you do is what works for you. So as I mentioned, we prefer to name our chapters rather than number them. But if it's more convenient, if you have, say, a book that has like, I don't know, 50 chapters, it might be more convenient to number those chapters rather than coming up with elaborate namings for them all. But in naming your chapter, it's very similar to naming your book, which we've covered in a previous episode. That'll be episode three of season one. If you want to head back and see what we said about planning the name for your book, it's very similar to that sort of process in the sense that you can name it pretty much whatever you want. It can have everything to do with the chapter. It can have nothing to do with the chapter. You know, whatever works for you. The second part to any writing of a chapter is convention versus unorthodox. Now, what I mean by this is the length of the chapter. Now, as I mentioned before, R.L. Stein numbers his chapters. And what you'll notice if ever you've, like me, you grew up on Goosebumps, loving the series, but you notice that the chapters can be like a page and a half. And when it's like a pocket-sized book, you think, that's hardly enough for a chapter. But this is because R.L. Stein writes in the conventional way of writing chapters, in the sense that whenever you change scene, change character, or change direction in the story, you change chapter. For other people, a chapter is a major point in the story. So, for example, if you take the likes of 
our previous novel, A Light in the Mist, it's not very heavy on chapters. Like, it's only seven chapters long, despite it being an 140-page book. This is because there's plenty of opportunity within those chapters to break them down into further chapters, but the simple reasoning behind those chapters was because those seven segments are the pivotal moments within that story. If you were to storyboard that entire story, you could storyboard it based on those seven chapters, you know, those seven pivotal points within that story. If you were to summarize A Light in the Mist, you could summarize it in seven points. I see that as we go through our books, but as we're writing now, we're sort of coming more along the lines of convention in the sense that we're trying to make room for more chapters to just to make it more digestible for readers and it's just something to bear in mind but on average i would say our chapters are probably about four to seven a4 pages per chapter other people will have reams you know they'll have 20 pages some people won't even have that you know for for a child's book some people will have one a4 page maybe even half an a4 page as a chapter it really depends on your target audience what their attention span is and who you are trying to reach. But the more convoluted you want to make your story, the more you can play around with chapter length. And as I've mentioned before, you're in complete creative control. So if you want a chapter that's 17 pages long, and then followed by a chapter which is only two pages long, that's completely up to you. You know, there's no set rule as to how you do it. Chapters are, once again, another tool in which you can use to make your book more effective and more of a representation of you and your craft. Okay, so that about wraps it up for this section. And that's it for episode three. Once again, guys, thank you for joining us. means a lot that you would take half an hour out of your time to make us a part of your otherwise busy schedule. Hopefully you've taken something positive away from the episode. In that case, I know I'm on the right track. I hope you found all the information helpful to those of you looking for tips and whatnot. Now I just want to take some time, as we have done in previous episodes, to talk about a project known as Top Dog Studios. It's a project managed by a good friend of mine, Callum Young. And if you want to head over to www.topdogstudios, that's all lowercase letters, .co.uk, there you will find a website specifically tailored for murals and graphic designs for best representing a particular brand. So if you are interested in having your brand represented by a handcrafted artist, someone who will treat your brand professionally, head on over to Top Dog Studios. Once again, the website is www.topdogstudios.co.uk. There you will find a place where you can enter your name, email address, your phone number, you can tell Callum about the project and then there's also additional sections for your budget and the timescale in which you want it completed. So if you're looking for a professional way to have your brand represented or someone that you know is interested in having their brand represented by a handcrafted artist, be sure to head on over to Top Dog Studios and I'm sure Callum would be more than pleased to hear about your project. Okay guys, once again, thank you for tuning in. Honestly, I can't stress enough how much this means to us every time you know people such as yourself listen to these episodes it's really the reason why we do it because without you well we're just another voice so from the bottom of my heart thank you i'm wayne telford and i'll see you next time